Good morning, saints. Thankful to be with you, albeit not physically, but spiritually, on this Easter Sunday. Um, I was listening to Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor this morning, trying to prepare my heart to preach. And these words were particularly pointed in light of our current moment. I wanted to read those to you, and then I'll pray, and then we'll look at our text for this morning. Christ, a sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ, a sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, Deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday this morning, our church and your true church throughout the world, I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us revealing to us the power and the purpose of your resurrected Son, that we might see that He is, even this day, the sure and steady anchor. I pray, Lord, that as your children go through the fury of this current storm, as the winds of doubt blow through us, and as we look upon our own sails and see that they are torn in the suffering and the sorrow, we will place our hope and our trust in the anchor who is Christ, knowing that He cannot be moved and therefore we cannot be moved. We pray for Your presence to be with us even though we are separated. We ask, Heavenly Father, that You be gracious with us this Easter morning as we look at this passage from 1 Kings, that You would encourage us, that You would embolden us, that You would bless us as a church to be bound together in our love for You and our love for one another, even as we are separated. We ask that You would do that to bless us as a people, to bless this community with the gospel of grace, but above all else, to bring Yourself honor and glory. Lord, I ask that You would use this time and this sinner to proclaim Your gospel in this most unorthodox way and that you would overcome our absence and our lack of gathering through your Holy Spirit, that we might truly worship you in spirit and truth this morning. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you don't have your Bible open to 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, please do that right now. I want to look at this passage uh, on this Resurrection Sunday. The title of the sermon is Our Resurrecting God. Um, There are several passages you can choose for a Resurrection Sunday or an Easter Sunday. Uh, This is one that I've contemplated for years but have never done and was excited to bring it to your attention. Um, So I want to read it through, verses 17 through 24, and then we will jump into the sermon. And by God's grace, be blessed. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? 
You have come to me to bring my sins to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Is truth. Every single Easter for hundreds of years, Churches around the world preach and teach to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And throughout the history of the church, the remembrance of His resurrection has, has brought great encouragement and power to His people in the midst of times of difficulty. When crisis has come upon the church, Resurrection Sunday has always provided a a hope and an encouragement for God's people when the fear of death has been more pronounced during times of persecution, war, famine, disease, plagues, pandemics. I expect this Easter Sunday 2020 to be no different. That as we talk about and as we weep over and as we try to comprehend and protect ourselves from the danger of the coronavirus, I pray this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, will both encourage you and empower you. I thought about some of the words that will be used today that will juxtapose each other in the mainstream media. We'll hear things about the death toll and the resurrection. We will hear about new infections and eternal life. We'll hear about the virus of death and the gospel of life. And as we hear these juxtaposing words and phrases, I would like us to strive to walk in the shoes of our ancestors who we know from church history walked through much more difficult times than these and many of whom remained faithful to Christ. I would like us to do that and by grace find great strength and encouragement in this single gospel truth that Jesus Christ did in fact bodily rise from the dead. And in His resurrection, we not only have life, but we have power to live holy lives now with the great hope of being resurrected from the dead ourselves. And I want to do that this morning by looking at a less taught to passage in 1 Kings 17, a resurrection passage from the Old Testament, the first recorded resurrection in the Bible. There are ten resurrection accounts in the Bible, three in the Old Testament and ten and seven in the New Testament, one of which, of course, is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the dead is a central teaching 
we would say, a primary pillar of our faith. So much so, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is in vain. And we believe that to be true because the entire redemptive plan of history involves raising people from the dead that we might know Christ now and live with Him forever. The church globally focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ at least once a year. But as we will see from this passage, and I pray, make part of our lives, it is essential for the Christian to dwell daily upon the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Because in His resurrection, it enables us to deal with our past. It enables us to be empowered in our present and to have hope for our future. And so I'd like to look at 1 Kings 17 with you this morning and the raising of this widow's son by the prophet Elijah. And in so doing, I I want us to be encouraged by and experience the power of the resurrection to do three things for us. One, change our past. Number two, empower our present. And number three, provide hope for our future. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has the ability to do all three of those things for the church. To change our past, to empower us and encourage us in the present, and to provide a real eternal hope for our future. So let's do that. Let's look at number one, how the resurrection changes the past of the believer. How does that happen? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change your past? Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is my God, is one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He and Moses, if you remember, appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he has a special place in God's Word. He was a prophet of the kingdom, the northern kingdom, at the time of the reign of the wicked king Ahab, who we all know was married to that glorious, wonderful woman Jezebel. If you remember Jezebel, she was the daughter of Ethbael, who was the king at the time of Tyre and Sidon, and she had successfully seduced Israel into worshiping their false god, Baal. When she married King Ahab, she brought the priests and prophets from Tyre and Sidon into Israel, and they worshiped Baal. Baal was the fertility god. Baal was, in their worship, the giver of life. He would bring the the rain to water the fields. It would bring the crops. So God, in response to the, the Israelites turning to Baal, He pronounced judgment through the prophet Elijah by bringing a drought for three and a half years upon the land. A drought so severe that hundreds, if not thousands, died from it. And it was during this drought somewhere around 860 B.C. in the northern kingdom under King Ahab, that Elijah is sent by God to a town named Zarephath. Now, Zarephath was on the Phoenician coast, right between Tyre and Sidon, about 50 miles north of Galilee. And we're told this. Look, look up a little bit with me. 1 Kings 17, look at verses 8 and 9. We're told, The word of the Lord came to Elijah... Verse 9, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, God said to Elijah, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. At the city gate, he, he meets this widow in the midst of drought. 
that brought starvation and death to many, and he asked her for food and water. Listen to her response. Look at verse 12. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. That we may eat and die. Elijah, in the following verses, reassures her that that's not what's going to happen. He tells her that God would provide for them an unending supply of food and water during this horrific drought. She acted in faith. She takes Elijah the prophet in, the man of God, and her obedience is rewarded as her neighbors and acquaintances perished from the drought. The man of God stayed with her and with her son And her flour and her oil never ran out. For three and a half years, God supernaturally sustained them as He had the Israelites in the desert for 40 years. And it was during this time, this time of the drought and the supernatural provision by God that death came to the house and the widow lost her son. And God did this to reveal to this poor widow and to Elijah that He, Yahweh, not Baal, is the God of life. He is the God who brings life. Look at verses 17 and 18. After this, after this drought and this death, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath in him. He died. The son died. This poor widow's greatest fear in sharing her food with Elijah was that she and her son would die. And now after months, if not years, of being supernaturally sustained by God, her flour and her oil never running out, water never being in short supply, God revealing himself as the God of life, her son dies, her only son, her only companion. She was a widow. Her only hope of being cared for in the future was her son, and now he's dead. Look at her response in verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Her theology is a little off, but her anger is fully understood. She wrongly connects her sins with the death of her son. And yet the Bible clearly teaches, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, listen closely for those of you who think that your sins have the power to bring judgment upon your children. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So her theology is not right in her connecting the death of her son with her own sin. But she is right in identifying herself as a sinner. The Holy Spirit does not tell us what sins she is thinking of. It might just be her sinful disposition before a holy God. But she's right in making the connection between her sinning against God and her just desert being death. Our widow got the first part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where Paul says, the wages of sin is death. 
And we believe that to be true. All sin, every sin, my beloved, is worthy of eternal damnation. Every sin we commit, the right judgment against that sin is eternal death. But she missed the second part of Romans 6.23 and why Elijah, the man of God, was in her house. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, true, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God did not send Elijah to this woman's house to bring death to her and to her son. He didn't have to. The drought would have killed them. She was down to her last meal. She admitted herself that they were about to die. God sent Elijah to save them. God had already revealed this by providing food and drink for three and a half years as hundreds if not thousands died around her. And now he would show her, listen, he would show her his real power as the God of the living, as a resurrecting God. He would do the unthinkable. He would raise her son from the dead, revealing himself and his power to the widow, to the son, and to the great prophet Elijah. 800 years after this event, God would send the true man of God, capital T, the man of God, to do the same thing, but not just for a poor widow in Zarephath, but for all of humanity. We're told in John chapter 3, a verse or verses you know well, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that, what, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have, listen, eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God the Father sent God the Son not to bring death, but to bring life by grace through faith in the death of His Son. God the Father sent Christ into the world to bring life to sinners like us, to save us from the consequences of our sins. The wages of sin is, in fact, death, and therefore we all deserve death. But God sent Christ to overcome the consequences of our own sins. My beloved, this is such glorious news on this Resurrection Sunday. Our poor widow thought that her past sins led to the death of her son, and yet God was there in her home to reveal that by grace through faith, He would bring life instead of death. He would overcome her past sins, not because she was deserving, but because He is good and gracious. He would reveal to her through the resurrection of her own son that He is the God of the living and He offers life to all who repent and believe. God the Father reveals the same hope to all mankind this very morning because God the Father sent His Son that He might perish and then rise that we might be saved. For all who repent of their sins, for all who put their trust in the Savior, our past Our past sins, our record which stands against us is no more. It's the governor or the president that commutes the life sentence of the prisoner. It's the mortgage holder who gets a phone call from the bank saying that your debt has been cleared. It's Eric Fitzgerald clearing the debt of Matthew Swatzo. Eric Fitzgerald was a young pastor, is a young pastor, 
who lost his wife and his unborn son in a tragic car accident. Matthew Swatzel, an EMT, fell asleep at the wheel and had a head-on collision with Eric's wife, killing her and his unborn child. When he went to trial, Eric petitioned the court to give Matthew the lowest sentence possible. After Matthew served his sentence, he ran into Eric at the grocery store. Eric embraced him and forgave him from the bottom of his heart, and they are now fast friends. My beloved, if a sinful man indwelt by the Holy Spirit has the power to forgive the debts of someone who took his own wife and his unborn son, how much more does God the Father have the desire and the ability to forgive our past sins through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ? Your past, if you are in Christ, has changed forever. It's been been rewritten by Christ Himself. That's why the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 43, 25, God spoke, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. The psalmist tells us, Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He, God, removed our transgressions from us. He's removed your sins. If you are in Christ, your record is now the record of Jesus. And Jesus' record is perfect. And so you have a perfect record before a holy God. And that means, my beloved, whatever baggage you brought into this Resurrection Sunday, whatever past sins that still have you bound, God is saying to you through Christ, it is finished, it is paid in full, stop thinking about it, stop condemning yourself over it, stop bringing your past sins into the present, contaminating your mind, contaminating your heart, ruining your walk of faith. They're paid in full. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ paid for your sins in full. There is no condemnation not now and not ever, for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, your past record is perfect because of the work of Christ. So we see, number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes the sinner's past. Praise God. Point number two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ empowers our present. It changes our past and it gives us power in the present. God in this story in 1 Kings 17, in spite of the widow's sins, He brings grace to her home. He sends the prophet Elijah to feed them and to provide them drink, sustaining them for three and a half years during this drought. But now her little boy was dead. Her little boy had died and all the water and all the food in the world would have been worthless to her worthless to this grieving mother's heart. Look at verse 18 again. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? There's anger. You have come to me to bring my sins to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. As a parent, I feel her grief. When she first met Elijah at the city gate, she was preparing to die. She was prepared for herself and her son to die as a result of the drought. And then God sends Elijah and they live. 
And so she goes from the depths of despair to the heights of inexpressible hope and joy. She was about to die and then she lived. And now, three years later, she finds herself in the depths of despair again. Her child becomes ill and her child dies. This poor woman is on a roller coaster ride of her life. And seemingly in her house, death had won. Her husband was already dead. And now she lost her son too. Death, it seems, had been victorious. Unlike physical sickness or job loss or a broken marriage or a broken friendship, there's no way to reverse death. Its finality is what makes it so difficult for the human mind to comprehend. Its permanence is what makes it so brutal for the heart. You see, my friends, we were created by God in the beginning to live in His presence forever. Eternal life is in the DNA of those created in the image of God. And that's why death runs so contrary to every fiber of our being. There's nothing natural about death. When we hear that at funerals and memorial services, you should recoil. The reason there's so much pain and so much heartache is that we hate death and we rightly hate it. We hate it, we run from it, we try to avoid it, we pray against it, we shelter in place precisely because we are, we are supposed to live forever. That's how God made us, in His image. And so she's rightly mourning the death of her son. Look at verse 19. Elijah said to her, Give me your son, And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. We have no idea how old the boy was, but he was little enough for the mom to hold him in her arms and he was small enough for Elijah to carry him up the stairs. He's tiny. He's tiny. It's such a devastating scene. Her son, having survived the drought, full of life, running around her house, is now lifeless in her arms. I think Elijah is caught off guard here as well. Elijah's prayer indicates that he was perplexed by God's actions. Look at verse 20. He cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, how have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Now do you notice that Elijah does not deny God's hand in it all? He doesn't. He recognizes the drought and the death as a result of God's doing. He even recognizes here that the death of this boy is God's doing. But what neither the great prophet of God nor the widow realize in this moment is that God had planned this boy's death to reveal himself to the prophet and to this woman that he is the giver of life that he might grow their faith. It reminds me of the dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples in John chapter 9. If you remember, right before he healed the man who had been blind from birth, the disciples asked him, why is he blind? Was it his parents' sin or was it his own sin? And then Jesus said this in John 9, 3. Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This boy's death was not the result of his mother's sins. It was not the result of his own sins. 
the son's death was to display the power, the work of God in raising people from the dead. The first occurrence we have in God's sacred scripture is the resurrection of this boy, this son. God wants to reveal himself as a resurrecting God because that's what he does. That's what this God does. Verse 21, then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Let him be what? Let him be resurrected from the dead. What Elijah was asking had never taken place in God's redemptive history. At least it hadn't been recorded. Elijah had no scripture to lean upon for the support of this type of prayer. But he asks anyway, because Elijah is a man, a faithful man of prayer, and Elijah knows something about our God that I still think we miss today. Elijah knows that if sinful man, who is the author of death, hates death this much, then how much more the creator of the universe, the Lord, the giver of life, the origin, the source of all life. How much more must he hate death? Infinitely so. The prophet is right. Look at verse 22. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him, into the son again, and he revived. He was resurrected from the dead. God had already saved the boy by sustaining him through the drought. The boy dies by God's decree, and then God was pleased to make him alive again, answering the prophet's prayers. Three times Elijah stretches himself out over the boy, stretches his arms out, and petitions the living God to make the boy live again. Look, he says, O Lord my God. He calls upon God personally to do this great, unthinkable work. And God answered, I will. And he brought life back to the boy, literally revived him, brought him back from the dead. And then, almost in matter, a matter-of-fact way, we're told this. Look at verse 23. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. This has never happened before. And this is the prophet's response. He fully expected God to answer the prayer. And he brings the boy down alive. Pure, unmerited favor and love poured out in this house, poured out upon this woman, poured out upon this boy. See, Elijah says, see with your own eyes, see what God has done. Your son whom you love was dead And you thought it was because of your sins. But God, being rich in mercy in spite of your sins, Elijah says, has shown his grace to you by making your son who was dead now alive again. It reminds me so much of Thomas. When Christ had to say, see, Thomas, touch my hands. See, Thomas, put your hand on my wounds. My beloved, in the blink of an eye, this woman's life went from utter despair to inexpressible joy. 
She found herself down in the valley of the shadow of death, and now she's lifted up onto that mountaintop because her son, who was dead, is now alive. She experienced in real time resurrection power that the God of the Creator, the Creator of the universe, not a false God, not a powerful, powerless God like Baal, but the Creator of the universe revealed to her that He has the power to bring the dead back to life. And she's able to live for the remainders of her days looking upon her son. And every time she looks upon him, she sees the power of the resurrection. Her faith is affirmed that this God truly does bring people back from the dead. My friends, millions are remembering the resurrection of God's Son this Easter Sunday, 2020. They are remembering it because 800 years after this resurrection account, God the Father sent His own Son into the spiritual drought of this fallen world. And His Son stretched out His arms on a Roman cross so that Christ could taste the sting of death in our place. So that through His Son's death and His Son's resurrection, God the Father could bring life, resurrection life, back to sinful man. Remember, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die. So God sends the Son, He kills the Son, and then He raises the Son as our substitute that we might have life instead of death. For those of you who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have experienced the resurrection power too. The Bible says very clearly, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, that we are dead in our sins, we are dead in our trespasses, in the uncircumcision of our flesh, and God what? God made us alive together with Him. So if you know Christ, you were dead like this boy was dead, and you have been made alive by the power of the Spirit. Our sins died on the cross with Christ so that through His atoning sacrifice, we could live a resurrected life. We're told that He forgave us all of our trespasses, counseling the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. So we too right now can live in the power and the light of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, We were buried therefore with Him, Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. Resurrection power. Right now for you today, if you are in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, walking in the newness of life. Do you really want to celebrate this Easter Sunday? If you're serious about worshiping God on this day, then you are called to walk in the newness that life, of life that God has given to you through the resurrection of Christ. I know that the Bible doesn't tell us, but I have no doubt that our poor widow lived very differently after the resurrection of her son. But how, how do you think she responded? How do you think her months and years played out? Her son was dead one minute, and then he's made alive by God. Do you think she was <clears throat> more grateful? Do you think she lived with a more thankful heart 
Do you think that her life was defined by holiness? Knowing that even though she was a sinner deserving of death, God was so gracious, He came to her home through the prophet Elijah and He raised her son from the dead. Do you think that she was more joyful? Do you think that she lived out her days, the remainder of her days, in the newness of the life that God had brought to her home? I think so. Every time she looked upon her resurrected son, she was reminded of this great God that had visited her. This great God who, in fact, raises people from the dead. She would be reminded every time she looked upon her son about how kind and gracious this Creator is to not only sustain her and her son for three and a half years, but upon her son's death, bring him back to life. She would recognize probably far better than we, my beloved, that if we know God, we have no fear of death. We have no reason to fear that which man is most afraid of. I would argue that that death is the greatest enemy of mankind, sin that brings upon death. God has the power to overcome death. And if God has the power to overcome death and you are in God, in Christ, then what can trouble your heart as a child of the living God? What could possibly bring anxiety or turmoil to you this Resurrection Sunday if you know that our God is a resurrecting God and He raised His Son, and if you are in His Son, He has and He will raise you. If you have the love and grace of God now, then death no longer has any power over you. You have been set free to walk in the newness of life now. Loving others sacrificially. Serving others with your time and your resources. Caring for those who can't care for themselves. Encouraging the downtrodden. Speaking the truth to one another in love. Sharing the gospel with those who have never heard of this great hope of being raised from the dead. Your newness of life will include prayer and study and growing in holiness and love. Every time we look upon the resurrected Son, every time we look upon Christ Himself, like the widow, we can be reminded of how good and gracious this God is. We can be reminded daily of the newness of life that we have as a resurrected people, and we can walk in that holiness, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit reigns in you if you are in Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, number one, it changes the believer's past. Number two, it empowers the believer's present. And lastly, I pray you're still with me, number three, it provides hope for our future. And what a message we need to hear this morning in light of the pandemic. One of the final effects the resurrection of this boy in this passage has on his mom, this widow, is faith in the Word of God. Did you get that? Her son's resurrection, something that had never... been experienced before, certainly not in God's redemptive story, and not revealed in Scripture, 
she saw, she experienced, and it solidified in her mind not only that Elijah was, in fact, a man of God speaking the truth, it solidified for her that every word he uttered were the words of the Lord. Look at verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She had been converted. Who knows what she believed up to this point in time. She was not a Jew by birth. She was likely a worshiper of Baal. She received Elijah the prophet into her home by faith, but not because she worshiped Elijah's God, but because he promised to provide food and drink in the midst of drought and death. But something changed with the resurrection of her son. Something definitive, a life-altering shift had taken place in her heart and mind. And it says in the text that now she knows. Now she knows what? Now she knows the Word of God. She believes that Elijah is the man of God and she believes that his words, his prophetic words, are in fact the Word of God itself. She believes his words and she believes that this God has the power to raise people from the dead. She believes that God sent Elijah the prophet, a man of God. She believes that his prophetic words are true and she believes that God has the power to raise people from the dead. Oh, my beloved, if, if those three truths apply to believers today in the church, if the contemporary evangelical church was firmly grounded upon the fact that Jesus Christ is the man of God, that his words are true, and that he has the power to raise people from the dead, how differently we would live today. My beloved, the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead 2,000 years ago, must have the same impact on us. We have so much more revelation. His resurrection on the third day in fulfillment of Scripture proves without question that He is the man He claimed to be. He is the man of God. Not a prophet, but the prophet. Not a king, but the king. Not a priest, but the high priest. He is, through His resurrection, His resurrection affirms that He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior King who came to do what? To set His people free. It affirms that. His resurrection affirms that He is worthy of all glory and honor. He is worthy to be listened to. He is worthy to be obeyed. He is worthy to be followed. His resurrection reveals that He is, in fact, the man of God. His resurrection reveals that every word He spoke is true. So that which we have recorded here in the Bible is not just words by a man, but it's words given to us by God, by the Word of God Himself. Every word. John chapter 10 Listen to the petition of Christ to those who refuse to believe. He said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, which Christ did perfectly, then even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Believe the resurrection. Why? 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. His resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that His words are true and therefore trustworthy. We ought to know them. We ought to want to know them. We ought to study them and meditate on them and have them define our lives from the inside out. His resurrection proves He is the man of God. His resurrection proves His words are true and therefore should be followed. And His resurrection... Jesus Christ being raised from the dead reveals that God is a God who resurrects dead people. And if you are in Christ, then that promise and that hope belongs to you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.14, By His power God raised Jesus from the dead, and He will also raise us. He will also raise us. That is one of the great hopes of our faith, is it not? Death, physical, spiritual death, will not be your end. That because Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father, if you have put your faith and your trust in this resurrected Savior, then you too will be raised to everlasting life. You can have that resurrection resurrection power now, and you will have it for all eternity. Because our end is not this place. Our end is being with our Lord, our resurrected Lord, His physical resurrection as we are resurrected with Him. So what impact should the man of God, His Word, and His resurrection have on us this morning? Let's make it super practical, saints. The widow got it. If we get it, and we see that Christ is the man of God, the Savior, the King, the Prophet, the Priest, If we truly believe that His words are true, every last one of them, and we believe that God has the power to raise the dead, He did in Christ and He will in us, how should it impact us as a church this morning? This morning, the CDC reported that 98,000, over 98,000 have died worldwide from the coronavirus. Over 18,000 now in the United States alone. New York has refrigerated trailers sitting in parking lots next to their hospitals because the city morgues are overflowing with dead bodies. The death of loved ones, the fear of death, it's on most people's hearts and minds. And it certainly is the topic of discussion, even on Resurrection Sunday. My question, as I thought about how this virus should be understood in light of Easter Sunday, is this. Are are we to assume that this is not God's doing? Are we to assume that Easter Sunday 2020 has taken God by surprise. Where was God in the widow's plight? He brought the drought that killed hundreds, if not thousands. He did that because of their false worship of the false god Baal. He sent the prophet to this widow's house to sustain them, and then he takes the widow's son and then raises the widow's son to reveal himself as a resurrecting God. My beloved, God is not absent from our current crisis. He's not surprised by it. 
He's not disengaged from it. It was God who said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 7, listen. God said, I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. God ordained for us to celebrate this Easter Sunday and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, in the midst of this pandemic. He uses viruses and He uses death to cause mankind to think more seriously about our own mortality. To make man more susceptible to hearing and receiving the gospel of grace. To drive us to our knees in prayer. To give us a hunger for His Word and a longing for His Son. History has proven that prolonged periods, my beloved, of peace, prosperity, and freedom from disease have always strengthened the flesh, not the spirit. Long periods of prosperity breed in sinful man a false sense of security, pride, self-sufficiency, and worst of all, a forgetfulness of the living God. How many this Easter Sunday will be more eager to hear the good news of the gospel of grace? How many? How many this morning will listen more intently to teachings on the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the judgment that is to come, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that offers hope through faith? How many will hear by God's grace whose ears will be more fine-tuned in light of losing a loved one or being sick themselves, maybe having one foot in the grave? How many will be more intent to hear the gospel this Easter Sunday? Charles Spurgeon, while preaching during the cholera outbreak in England in 1866, He said this, listen. This virus, speaking of the cholera virus, this virus is like the sound of a trumpet of war. A trumpet of war. The voice of the Christian ministry is not heard. Those who go to listen to it do not hear. Sounds like he's describing the Western church today. Disease, however, he says, is a trumpet that must be heard. Its echoes reach the miserable garrets where the people are crowded together and have never heard nor cared for the name of Christ. They hear the sound, and as one after another dies, they tremble. And then he writes this, Would to God all of us were aroused to a searching of heart, and above all, led to fly to Christ Jesus, the great sacrifice for sin, and to find in Him a rescue from the greater plague, the wrath to come. God brings calamity and He brings death just as He did with our widow to awaken His church from her slumber. 
to awaken us that we might live in the newness of life now, that we might live resurrected lives now for this fallen world and for the glory of God. He brings suffering and hardship. He brings a shelter in place that we might not gather on Easter Sunday so that we too, His people, might flee to the cross. So that we who are still dealing with a sin that we refuse to put to death, who have been denied the joy and the proximity of God because of this sin, that we will flee to the cross and we will pray to Christ that we might be set free from this sin. That we might be more effective ministers to the lost. My beloved, how can you help others? How can you encourage others in a time like this if sin is preventing you from the encouragement that God provides in Christ? How can you be the salt and the light that this world so desperately needs in the midst of this virus if you are not overflowing with the love of God in Christ because of sin in your life? He brings sin and death He brings the virus, a virus and death that we might see and we might repent and we might walk in holiness. He sounds the trumpet to awaken His church to the work that is at hand, to the work of love and ministry, to the work of service, to the work of evangelism and sharing the gospel with your mission field this day, tomorrow, this week. Those who are far more apt to hear about salvation by grace through faith in Christ in light of the death that surrounds us. This current pandemic makes the soil ripe for the seed. If you have unconverted friends, unsaved family, acquaintances that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, now, my beloved, now is the time to share Men are always dying, and the gospel always needs to go out. It always needs to go out. But in this moment, many souls are being hurried down the corridors to the judgment seat of God without a Savior, without hope. We, God's church, we are the watchmen. We are to sound the trumpet of salvation in Christ alone. We are to let people know in light of this plague and this death that there is hope after death. It is our responsibility. It should be our joy and our great blessing. It's not optional though. If the church will not be the watchmen bringing the gospel message to those who are perishing, then their blood will be upon our hands. Ezekiel chapter 33. Listen. God said to the prophet, He who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. As many perish around us, as many 
shelter in place for the fear of death. If we, the watchmen of God, do not bring the hope of the gospel to them and they perish, they will perish in their iniquity, but their blood will be upon our hands for we have not shared with them the hope of Christ. We have not told them that death does not have to be their end. Top scientists around the world are searching for an anecdote to the COVID-19 virus. And we are thankful for this. We're thankful for it. But you must realize that the anecdote sinful man truly needs, you already possess. You already have. What if all 98,000 who have died from this virus already and those who will die in the upcoming weeks What if every single one, without exception, knew, without a doubt, that when they died, they were going to be raised from the dead, not to eternal judgment, but to everlasting life? What if they knew that? And what if they believed it? And what if they possessed it because they had placed their trust and their hope in the Savior? Wouldn't that change everything for them? Wouldn't that change everything for us right now as we approach this crisis? Isn't that, as they say in sports, wouldn't that be a game changer? If they all knew, if every single person who died from this virus knew Christ? What if this dying world heard what Jesus said to Martha right before our Lord raised Lazarus from the dead? What if the the world, this dying world, heard and believed Jesus when He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because of our resurrected Savior, our future, my beloved, is not a sentence of death. It's a sentence of life, eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Christ died and He rose from the dead to change your past, to erase the record of debt that stood against you and give you His perfect record of righteousness that you might become a son or a daughter of His Father in heaven. Jesus Christ died and He rose to empower you to live right now in the Spirit, in the newness of life, a resurrected life, A life lived for God and lived for others. And Christ died and He rose from the dead to secure your eternal future so that you know that death has no sting in your life. That you are not bound by it. That when you leave this place, you will be joined bodily with God and the church forever. Jesus Christ died and He rose and we remain here that we might tell others, that we might be the faithful watchmen, 
that we might be the men and women of God who go out to this dying world and tell them of the hope of the resurrection they too can have in Christ. What a glorious way for us to celebrate this Resurrection Sunday 2020. Even as we're unable to gather, what a glorious way for us as a church to worship and serve God by telling our family and our friends and our acquaintances and our neighbors, this day, this Resurrection Sunday, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of death, to tell them there's hope in Christ. That death does not have to be their end. The fear of death does not have to consume how they live. Because Christ lives. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a glorious truth. My beloved, I pray that that resonates deeply upon your heart and mind, and that this Resurrection Sunday, it transforms you into the image of the Son Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be gracious with us as you were with the widow so long ago. As you sustain us in the midst of this drought. As you promise through the death and resurrection of your Son to cancel our debt in full. As you empower us now in your Spirit to live holy lives. And as you secure our future through the resurrection of your Son. I pray that we as a people, we as a church, not just individually but collectively, we would live in the newness of life that you have given us freely. Father, we recognize, like the widow, that our sins deserve death. We recognize, Father, that all that you do, all the provision, all the hope, all the promises that you've secured for us in Christ are pure, unmerited favor. It is grace. None of us are deserving of it. And yet we come to you as children with arms wide open and ask that you would bless us. Bless us with this hope. Bless us with the power of the Spirit to overcome the sins that we still dabble in. Bless us with the power to live resurrected lives. Bless us with mouths and tongues and lips that speak the truth in love. Bless us as faithful watchmen, I pray, that we would tell this dying world of the hope they can have in Christ. Bless us with your presence, Lord, even as we're gathered in our homes and are unable to be together as a church. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Encourage us with yourself that we might know you more fully and love you more dearly and be drawn deeper and deeper into this faith. I ask, Lord, during this time of separation, you would do just that that you would grow us exponentially in our faith so that when we gather together as a church, hopefully soon, that we would be stronger, we would be closer, we'd be more intimate in our love with you and our love for one another. We ask that you would do this to bless your local church here at Cambrian Park and all your true churches throughout the world. We ask that you would do it above all else for your own glory and honor. You are worthy of it. 
In Christ's name we pray, amen.